Welcome to another South Mims U Malta Studies podcast. And welcome to a small, old, empty house in Attard, Malta. I'm staying here overnight to investigate a family myth. All families, especially Maltese families it seems, have their own myths. Stories which are used to define a family's character or establish a lineage of character that helps strengthen bonds between disparate groups of people who share not only blood and DNA, but eccentricities and quirks which they hope to explain away. This story plays out during the 1918-19 influenza pandemic, but it starts when war was declared in 1914. In April of 1919, a cousin of my great-grandmother disappeared quite literally into the thin, germ-laden air of the time, from this house, or in this house. His spirit, I've always been told, has imbued this place with both tragedy and magic. The story always fascinated me. And it has a deceptively simple arc. Gerald Victor Zammit was a sensitive young man, a musician of great talent. The family believed he would become an internationally renowned virtuoso violinist. He was tall and pale and blessed with a shock of auburn hair inherited, it was said, from a distant Irish ancestor. He lived on Old Bakery Street, Valletta, in a grand house that is now a boutique hotel. He was sickly as a child, but robust as an adolescent and as a young man, though he always believed that he was on the verge of some terrible sickness. His hypochondria became a kind of family joke one he didn't appreciate, and one that he fought against when he was teased by his brothers and sisters, and his many cousins. When the First World War broke out, he surprised everyone by signing up for the British Royal Navy as a bandsman. He had every right to join. He was, after all, a British colonial citizen, as all Maltese men and women were at that time. To help me research this episode, I spoke to the British historian, Melissa Bentham. We met at Cordina's, a café on Republic Street, Valletta. Malta had been suffering economically before the start of the First World War. Its position as a strategic colonial maritime base saw Britain neglect the development of Maltese agriculture and industry. Everything was focused on serving British forces. Unemployment was high and standards of living for the majority of the people were quite strained. But the war changed that. Well, it changed it quite quickly. Suddenly, Malta's strategic importance had a real purpose, providing a base for the Royal Navy which mobilised in the Mediterranean. 
There were 6,000 men of all ranks in the British garrison and they were all focused on the strategic imperatives of the European war. But did Maltese men join up? I mean, did they, did they have to join up? No, they didn't have to, but they could have if they wanted to. In fact, according to the Maltese National Archives, it seems that around 15,000 Maltese served during the war in a range of capacities. But Malta was basically a big hospital, wasn't it, at that time? As the war developed, yes. Many hospital ships brought casualties to Malta, and Maltese medics as well as nurses served on both land and at sea. More specifically, 7,000 Maltese served in the Malta Labour Corps. They worked to load and unload ships and provide manual labour. One battalion was involved in loading and unloading the ships that served at Gallipoli. Ah, uh, Gallipoli, that was famous, I mean infamous, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was very controversial at the time, very tragic, and it still is. Britain and France wanted to support Russian forces fighting the Ottoman Empire, which was on the side of the Germans, by capturing the Gallipoli Peninsula in 1915 so that Allied ships could pass through the Dardanelles, which are straits between Greece and Turkey. The Allied forces were mainly colonial troops, weren't they? Yes, from Australia and New Zealand mostly. Commanders had underestimated the strength of Ottoman forces and many were killed during the landings and subsequent trench warfare. Yeah, it was a stalemate for more than six months. Yeah, it was, yes. We know that one battalion of Malta Labour Corps served off Gallipoli with another two serving off Salonica. Supplying the fighting troops? Yes. The role of the Maltese personnel troops was focused on freeing up British troops as well as a large number of men from Australia and New Zealand to do the fighting. So would Gerald have been there? That's hard to say. As a bandsman he would have been focused on keeping morale as high as possible, but he would also have been de deployed on other tasks, I mean as an able-bodied man. The image I have of him is this sickly aesthete. But that's based on what subsequently happened. He might just have been a headstrong young man to begin with, and then the war weakened him in body and spirit. He refused to become an officer, which, given his social class, would have been easy for him. He wanted to play music, and he also wanted adventure. The experience of Gallipoli would have scarred him, that's for sure. Maybe the experience changed him. It's hard to know. All we know is he took one long breath and disappeared in 1919. There's nothing in this house anymore. I vaguely remember it being occupied by an ancient uncle who had a wall of stuffed birds, birds he'd cheerfully shot in the large garden of this house. As a child, I sat on the floor dipping almond biscuits into a large cup of milk and looking up at an array of birds, all kinds of birds, native species and migratory species, big birds and small birds, all of them posed on some kind of perch, their eyes illuminated by a strong summer sun, which poured through a stained glass window to create weirdly coloured patterns on the wall, making the colours of those still feathers more vivid and making the glassy eyes of all those birds glint mysteriously. My uncle said that Gerald returned from the war more of a man, but less of an individual. He would practice his violin in the small room he slept in on the top floor. 
He was afraid to go out, for fear of catching something. He would carry a large, monogrammed silk handkerchief and cover his face if he passed anyone on the street, or if some distant relative or old school friend stopped for a chat. That large, white handkerchief became a symbol. It was how people spotted him on Kingsway in Valletta, and it became a kind of symbol of his fragility, which people put down to his experience of the war. Gerald arrived back in Malta in early 1918, just as the first rumours of the so-called Spanish flu were spreading around Europe. Melissa filled me in on the Maltese experience of the pandemic. The prosperity which the war produced at the beginning was actually quite short-lived. Unlike the Second World War, the Mediterranean wasn't a significant theatre of combat. Though there were forces across North Africa and the Middle East, Malta saw unemployment rise in 1916, along with food prices, and the population suffered food shortages. That led to strikes and some unrest at the Malta dockyard in May 1917. So Malta didn't enter the pandemic in good shape? No. There was widespread hardship and poverty, and endemic TB though Gozo seemed to fare better as it was somewhat isolated from those problems. So how did Malta experience the first wave of the influenza? Not surprisingly, it was first seen in men who worked at the dockyard, as well as those who worked in colonial government offices. Because they were interacting with the naval personnel and civil servants from outside Malta? That's most likely. The Spanish flu was spread by the movement of troops and military personnel, and it was highly contagious, so it raged across Europe. Malta couldn't escape. Uh, did it hit Malta hard? Actually, in relative terms, it didn't. Jane Orr, who's an expert in medical history, gave a lecture not so long ago in which she pointed out that the Maltese authorities actually responded quite quickly to the threat. They closed schools, restricted passenger numbers on buses and launched an information campaign to inform the people about how the virus spread and how to protect against it. That campaign was quite effective. In fact, it was strikingly modern in the light of the advice we were all given during Covid. So how did Malta compare with uh, other countries? Well, it's recorded that 730 Maltese people died and two-thirds of them were aged between 15 and 45. Unlike Covid, the Spanish flu was most fatal to the younger cohorts of the population. That's what made it so tragic, especially after the carnage of the war. And it's no surprise that Gerald was so worried about it. No surprise at all. In fact, his habit of covering his mouth and nose with that silk handkerchief was, well, a wise thing to do. So, how, how does 730 compare then? It doesn't sound like a high figure. It's three people for every thousand people. Italy lost 13 people for every thousand. That's more than four times the death rate here in Malta, which is significantly better than many other countries. And did uh, Malta experience all the waves? There were three major waves, weren't there? Yes, three major waves. The first wave happened in early 1918 and led to the cancellation of the carnival that year, which takes place in February but it was allowed to take place in 1919. It's a big tradition. It was even bigger and more important then. 
Yes, but the 1919 carnival kicked off a third wave, or so we think. Most deaths had occurred in the second wave, which ran from September to November of 1918. But I think from what you've said, it was during the third wave that Gerald retreated to Atan. Yes, that's when he disappeared. It was when he took what my aunt calls the longest breath. Gerald was persuaded to play his violin at one of the carnival events. He was asked to join a string quartet and, to everyone's surprise, he agreed. He appeared in his formal clothes with his white scarf wrapped around his face. He got through the Allegro and began the Andante. But then someone started to cough. <coughs> and then more people began to cough. <coughs> Gerald stopped playing and left the stage. <gasps> and he retreated with his violin to this house where he insisted on living alone and where he practiced his scales obsessively every morning and every evening. He was never seen outside his house without his silken scarf covering his mouth and nose. The only time he left Attard was to walk to San Anton where he would sit in the famous gardens there and write letters to a friend he'd made in the Navy. A fellow bandsman, an older man, a man we think was named Alberto Baldacchino. It's hard to say who Gerald's friend was, but there are fragments in the letters that were found soon after his death which point to one individual. Gerald never sent any of the letters. He wrote them as a kind of therapy for himself. They were addressed to Dear A.B. and listed in the Imperial War Museum's archives is a Maltese man named Alberto Baldacchino, who was born in Malta in 1872, in Sliema, and was married to a woman named Teresa. Alberto joined the Navy in 1916. He was 43 when he enlisted and so was considerably older than Gerald. That sounds old for a naval recruit. Well, you've got to remember that he joined as a bandsman, so he must have been a working musician. Maybe he had a reason to leave Malta? Well, there could be a million reasons why a man of that age enlisted. Patriotism, perhaps. Uh, or he was unemployed. Or his wife had died. Or he wanted to get away from his wife. <laughs> well, it's easy to speculate, but unless we do a search of church archives, births and marriages, we won't know. So, Alberto was in the Navy with Gerald? We think he was. I'm speculating, but we do know that Gerald was at the Battle of Jutland which is where Alberto died. I've heard of the Battle of Jutland, but I know nothing about it. It took place over two days, 31st of May and 1st of June, 1916. 
and is remembered as the largest naval battle of the First World War. It was the one time that the famous British and German dreadnought ships faced one another. Uh, yes, the dreadnought. Uh, Turbine-powered and bristling with big guns. Right. So you do know a little bit about the First World War? Yeah, just a little about the ships, but that's just evidence of a slightly nerdy past. HMS Invincible, the British dreadnought, was sunk. Only six men survived. We think Alberto was on that ship. Uh, And not Gerald? He wasn't listed amongst those six survivors. He was probably on another of the ships. There were many ships in that battle. The British lost 14 ships and over 6,000 men, and the Germans lost 11 and 2,500 men. The battle ended in stalemate, but the British retained control over the shipping lanes around the Jutland Peninsula. Yeah, which is at the very northern tip of Denmark? It is, yes. British control of those shipping lanes allowed them to eventually blockade Germany and contribute to its eventual defeat in 1918. It must have been a traumatic experience for Gerald. Well, it must have been, if he was there. As I said, we're speculating. Yeah, but it makes a good story. It ties up some loose ends. Well, that's up to you. I'm a historian. I don't do stories. Yeah, point taken. Historians might not do stories, but history is sterile without them. My fascination with Gerald and his longest breath brings to life a turbulent period in European and Maltese history, as does this house. This dark, dusty, abandoned house. It's as if when Gerald took his fabled long, deep breath, all the air was sucked out of the place. The family myth has it that when he retreated to avoid the influenza, he locked all the doors and shuttered all the windows and cut off all contact with people. His family, his neighbours, even the shopkeepers and farmers from whom he took his supplies. He practised his violin. He fed the feral cats. He sat in the garden his scarf around his face. He practised and practised so much that some of his neighbours complained, but that didn't stop him. Until one day, we think in early April 1919, there was silence. My great-grandmother's second son finally broke into the house to find Gerald lying on his bed, suffering from an intense fever. He had caught the Spanish flu, despite his rigid isolation. At the sight of my great-uncle, he gasped, reached for his silk handkerchief, but couldn't find it, and then took his last long breath. Of course, the story then became about a haunting. Not just any haunting, there were never any ghosts involved. No Gerald appearing in the shadows with that handkerchief over his mouth. But a musical haunting, one punctuated by long breaths, almost percussive breaths, as if that long, deep breath Gerald took to try and save himself from a pandemic was caught on the wind and has ever since spun around the earth, 
caught in the endless eddies of air which surround and envelop us at each moment, here in Malta and anywhere you might be listening to this podcast. The music of those breaths resembles the tones of Gerald's violin, as well as, it's been claimed, the haunting tone of a clarinet. Might Alberto have played the clarinet? We don't know. It's cold in here suddenly. I'm not afraid because I believe that Gerald was a gentle soul and gentle souls don't haunt. They imbue a place with their spirit. They encourage rather than terrorize. Gerald may have feared the influenza, he may have run from it, an act that was ultimately futile, but his passion for music and his spirit of adventure are what inspire me. Take a deep breath and face your fears. Take a deep breath and take a chance. Take a deep breath and deal with your grief. And that's what I believe Gerald did. He didn't run from the flu. He retreated to live the life he wanted. But something disappointed him. Maybe it was returning to Malta and feeling constrained by... By what exactly? His family? Their expectations? Their prejudices? The narrowness of Maltese society at that time? It's hard to say. What's clear is that he couldn't breathe here. Maybe he didn't retreat for fear of the virus. Maybe he retreated because his experience of war had both horrified and energized him, and he couldn't decide how to deal with those conflicting forces. Strangely, his haunting, this haunting, does not feel like a malign one. It feels, surprisingly, inspiring. I can't quite define why. Take a deep, long breath and live. <sighs>